That video was great too. Um, just thinking about it now, so the first bit of Ecclesiastes, it links well because it's kind of talking about risk and uncertainties that happen in life and it fits well with our passage today. Um, but let's, uh, let's come before our God. Let's pray as we dig into this wonderful book, Ecclesiastes. Uh, we will need God's help. You know, last week we were speaking about that wonderful passage uh, and looking at the great hope we have and now we're looking at Ecclesiastes, uh, which the young adults have chosen for us. And that begins, doesn't it, and ends with meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. So we will need God's help as we come to this, um, this book today. So let's pray. Yeah, God and Father, you are the God of all love and all wisdom. And so Lord, we just do want to pray for this day as we gather together. And that you would help us, that you would guide us. Um, please, by your spirit, grant us wisdom so that we might uh, know um, how to live for the Lord Jesus. And that we might know him better. We do give you thanks for your word and we, we just ask that you would be with us now, we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to meet Jenny. Uh, Jenny's uh, just finished year 12. She's put her enrolment in uh, to do a, a teaching degree at uni. But she's just not quite sure that's exactly what she should be doing. She's not sure if that's what God has made her for and what she should do with her life. And then meet John. Uh, John's 21 uh, when he was 12. Uh, his doctor diagnosed him with ADHD. Uh, and he's also, for most of his life, just been absolutely obsessed with video games. He loves them. Doesn't matter what plot platform, you know, PC, console, even phone games, he loves it. But he hates the fact that he kind of feels a bit trapped. And even feeling trapped and, and even lonely, he finds it difficult and even tiresome to socialise with people. And then there's Julie. Julie loves uh, to travel. Uh, she's 24, and so far she's been to over 12 different countries around the world. Absolutely loves it. But life's getting quite busy very busy and it feels like there's not enough time or money even to be able to visit all the places she would like to experience in life and then there's Jack Jack's 21 um, his parents have been recently going through a divorce and he feels like everyone around him is kind of let him down but more than that he's kind of feeling like he himself is a failure sometimes he feels so overwhelmed by life uh, that he can't even manage to drive his car to get to uni or to even get to his part-time job. Something bad might happen at any time. Now, we all have different lives, don't we? We all have different struggles. But hearing these stories, I wonder if you can identify with some of the things going on in, in these people's lives. Or maybe you even know some people who, who are going through similar situations. And if you're here today and you're a bit older, you know, you're uh, mature, I kind of wonder what you think of these examples. Like, what advice would you give to these young people if you knew them, if you loved them, and wanted what was best for them? Well, today we are in Ecclesiastes, uh, and it's, you know, part of the Bible that's known as wisdom literature. It's, it's meant to teach us and help us in some way to know how to live. And like I said, it starts and ends with that phrase, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. But if you're to read the book, what you'll find is that the teacher 
in this book, who's speaking, he's not actually saying that life is meaningless, but that it's just kind of downright frustrating. It's difficult. He uses this word chevel in the Hebrew. It's, 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 it's futile. It's kind of absolutely just like trying to grasp after the wind. So we're going to be wrestling with chapter 11 and 12 in particular this morning to see how it helps us to live. And I thought, before we dig into it, it'd be good to have a bit of an overview of the book, right? Rather than just jumping into the middle of a, a movie somewhere, we don't want to do that. So it would be good to have a little bit of an overview of what's been going on in this book. I thought we'd look at the Bible Project. Um, I know some people are familiar with the Bible Project. They do a wonderful job. And they certainly do of Ecclesiastes here of giving an overview you know, they say much more in much littler time than what I could. They also have pretty pictures. Uh, so let's uh, just spend some time now watching this video, and then I'll be back with you in a moment. The book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in Hebrew, the word kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn. So it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon. Others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line. And still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author, who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end. And it's hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke. And the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. But secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. 
So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us, and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. And the ocean will still be breaking on the beach, and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer, and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, no matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die, and it's inescapable. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, like wealth or career or social status or pleasure. So you think working hard is going to make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're going to be too old to enjoy it anyway. And then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is going to make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations. Live for the weekend party. Monday always comes. Hevel, hevel. Everything is utterly hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're hevel too, because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be. Because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you, 
But he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment, the hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. Thanks, Brett. Thank you very much. It's a great little overview, isn't it? I think I kind of felt like that guy at the end with all the books uh, this week as I was going through Ecclesiastes. It's a wonderful summary. You know, try and find meaning... Satisfaction in anything in this life is hevel. It's like trying to grasp after smoke. It's absolutely futile. But I think this will help us as we um, you know, kind of dig into the end of chapter 11 uh, and look at a little chapter 12, because I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, what the teacher is saying in those verses that Charlotte read and then Maddie read a little bit later. It's pretty clear in what he means. Do you think so? I think it's pretty clear, but I think the thing we need to notice is how is he saying it? What is the passage trying to show us? What are, we, what is it, what are we to do with what it's saying? Basically, we want to know, isn't it? How does it teach us how to live? Well, it's pretty clear, like I said, with what it's saying. This is the message of those verses of, of chapter 11. Life is short, so enjoy it. Live it up while you can. That's the message. Rejoice in life. You first notice this because it has kind of this imperative. It's actually got a call to enjoy life, a call to rejoice in in both 7 and in verse 8. It says, Their light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is havel, it's futile. This is saying that life in and of itself, just life, it is good. It's good to be alive. You know, the fact that you are breathing air into your lungs right now is a gift from God. And, let, you know, that phrase of our eyes seeing the sun, it's not just, you know, kind of a physical thing. It's a, it's a metaphor to try and pick up that life is so good. It's beautiful, like... It's kind of maybe if you picture those moments that you may have had, like when you get up early, maybe some people don't know this, but you get up early and you see the sunrise over the hills and the valleys. And it's not, it's not that the sun in and of itself hitting your eyes is the main, the main thing. It's just that you have this moment, even if it's for a split second, that you are alive as your senses are filled up and you're just aware of the gift that is. 
But then notice it adds also a little bit of perspective around this, doesn't it, in verse 8? It's good to be alive because it ain't going to last. In verse 8, dark days are coming and there's going to be a bunch of them. Actually, the the teacher specifically uh, calls the youth then, uh, the young, in verse 9 and 10, to not only rejoice in life, And rejoice in the fact that you are young, but he actually implores them to live it up, to live radically. Uh, Verses 9, where are we? It says there, you who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know for all these things God will bring you into a judgment. So then... Banish anxiety from your heart and cast off troubles of your body for youth and vigor are heaven futile. It says there, doesn't it? Whatever it is that your heart desires to do, do it. Go after it. Whatever you're feeling led towards, whatever your dreams and passions are, go after it. And then verse 10 seems to be saying like kind of, don't worry, be happy. You know, don't, don't waste time in self-pity and of being weighed down by the anxieties that can come in life. There's no time for that. You only live once. YOLO, as they say. Or that old, you know, kind of Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. Seize the day. Or even older, you know, phrase by Nike, just do it. Get on with it. Go for it. Time is short. The days of darkness will come and are coming. And that's where, actually, things head in chapter 12. Uh, we, we didn't read, um, Maddie stopped at verse 1, but in chapter 12, verses 2 to 7, it's full of this poetic imagery that, that tries to capture, with great metaphors, out of old age that leads to death and death that leads to the grave. Uh, I'm just going to read them for you and see if you can hear this imagery that comes out. It's so strong. It speaks of the frailty of body and mind, speaks of... You know, losing your grinders, losing your teeth, you're losing your eyesight, losing your libido. And then it speaks of that road that we all are heading towards, our end. So remember your creator, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds but their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along. And desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go to the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Pretty amazing and full-on imagery, isn't it? It's a heavy picture. Uh, my, my wife went to Perth, the Perth Women's Convention uh, just last year. I think it was in September, was it? September? October, September. 
Uh, but she did mention there that uh, they were going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and she mentioned there that uh, Jenny Salt, who was the speaker, when she was summarizing these verses up in, in a little phrase, it was this, old age is not for wimps. It's good, isn't it? I love it. Old age is not for wimps. If you're younger, you should really be looking up to those who are older. They know what it is to battle. They know it. And this is actually where the teacher in Ecclesiastes was heading all along. This is actually what he wants us to get, you know, whether you're young or you're old, is that if you want to know how to live a richer and better life, you kind of got to start at the end. You've got to kind of start at the end and work your way backwards. You need to grasp hold of the fact and this knowledge that there's one certain thing in your life, the thing we're all heading towards, towards our death. And it's going to come sooner than you think. Death really gives you a deep and true perspective about life, doesn't it? You only get one shot, one opportunity, so enjoy life. Be radical, be daring in how you live which I think uh, anyone in our culture at this point would say, yeah, awesome, that's, that's good, I'm on board with that. Um, you know, even, even people who completely ignore God and don't give, give a hoot about him would love this advice, wouldn't it? Like, think about anyone you know that, that doesn't care about going to churches and what they would think about these verses. Rejoice in youth? Yeah, live it up. That sounds great. Follow the desires of your heart? That sounds like good wisdom. wisdom. And they wouldn't have a problem with it at all. And... And then you might be rightly asking then, well, Adam, is this kind of right then? Like, wouldn't this like risk us teaching a false heresy of running after hedonistic pleasures in life? And doesn't the Bible kind of speak about, you know, the folly and errors of following your heart? Like Numbers 15, when God says to them, look, you've got to put those Bible verse tassels on your clothes. And he says this uh, in 39, you have these tassels to look at, so you will remember all my commands, all my teachings that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own heart and your own eye. The scripture reminds us clearly over and over again about the way our hearts are kind of broken and twisted and, and they're going to deceive us and trick us, yours and mine included. Jesus has those words, doesn't he, which you guys probably know well, that it's not about the stuff on the outside of the world that hurts you and wrecks you, but it's what comes from within your own heart. Mark 7, Jesus says this. For it is within, from within your, a person's heart that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. What is this passage teaching us then? Well, if you're to read the rest of Ecclesiastes, uh, which would kind of be a wise thing to do, I encourage you to do it. Uh, Make sure you go to maybe a gospel afterwards. It's pretty heavy. But you would come to the conclusion that it's pretty clear that the teacher in this book is not trying to, to, you know, say, live a hedonistic life. He, He actually looks and points to the folly and the doom that come with chasing after pleasure. But in any case, in our passage itself, the teacher actually throws in that wisdom spanner for us. You know, if you're encouraged to live a life of, of you know, living free from all boundaries, he actually tells us something in verse 9. You probably noticed it, actually. 
uh, a bit further down. So follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. So, so there it is. Enjoy life. Go for it. But here comes the spanner. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That's great, isn't it? He's like, he's like, say, go for it. Make bold choices in life. Do whatever you want. But know that God's going to judge you for those choices. It's crazy. It's like he's pouring water over the fire of anyone thinking, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want or live however we want or travel wherever we want or spend money however we want or marry whoever we want. We're all going to have to answer to God for the decisions that we have made in life. And here's the real issue, isn't it? The problem's actually not with living boldly and radically. The problem is our hearts. Like, they just don't know what it is that will really bring us true joy. The problem is our hearts don't really know what it is that is for our good and for the good of others. This is kind of what wisdom literature does. It's, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? It kind of gives you more questions, doesn't it, than just simply giving you a box to tick. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Tick it off. The teacher here, he, he wants you to think about it. He wants you to meditate on it. What does this mean for my life? The call for the teacher to live radically so long as it's done rightly. But the problem is our inability, isn't it, to do what is right. Our hearts fail us time and time again. So where does the teacher go? Well, he comes to one final R word uh, that, we, that we read, and we're going to look at briefly, around this you know, call to rejoice in life and live radically. And it comes, yeah, there, verse 1. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. So the call here is to remember your creator while you're young. And remembering here, it's not so much just an intellectual thing of thinking about it, recalling who God is. No, it's an understanding of who he is that's so overwhelming that it, it kind of affects your mind. It transforms your perspective in life. And it's so overwhelming that it's deep, that it enters into your heart, and it must shape your life. See, it's remembering God. It's not just to know about God, but it's to know Him. To know Him as the living God, the one who is completely other, awesome, holy. Therefore, it's to know who we are, isn't it, really? to know who we are we are his we belong to him like he is god he knows what is best you know our, our modern culture uh, and the way they understand our freedom is kind of that freedom with no limits or boundaries whatever you choose that's what it is isn't it? it's kind of a merely a self-focused self-centered uh, freedom it kind of disregards nature it disregards the world God made and kind of says, well, stuff it, I just want to do what I want. I'm free to, right? But this type of freedom, can you see it's kind of a freedom that's from stuff? Freedom from all constraints? Which could mean that if someone wants something, they can just take it from you. Why not? They're free to, aren't they? Now, that, that type of freedom does not work at all. It can't work, even in a person's own life. But the, the freedom that is real freedom, that, that the Bible speaks about, is positive freedom for something to the how, to have that power to do right the freedom for good 
like in an example of that negative kind of freedom from, like if you were invited over my house, um, then you're kind of free, aren't you, to behave in an acceptable, acceptable way that it is to go to someone else's house. Uh, and actually, if you know me, like, I'll kind of like say, if, yeah, if you want something in the fridge, just go for it, whatever's in there. If you want something from the cupboard, you know, feel free to. But you're kind of not free to do other things. Like, you're not free to just take pictures off the wall and smash them. You're not free to trash my house. You're not free to like, oh, that looks good, and take it, are you? No, it's my house. I'm going to kick you out if you do that, and you probably won't get invited back. Well, we live in God's world, don't we? It's his place. He knows what is best. Actually, this is where the book of Ecclesiastes end, as we saw in, in that picture, and concludes. It's fear God. This is the end of the matter. Fear him. He is awesome. Fear God and keep his ways. Keep his commands. And the good thing is that God's ways are good. Do not steal. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Imagine if every single person could just do one of those things. How much better would life be? It would be amazing, wouldn't it, if no one stole? God's ways are good. So the call is for us to remember, to know our God, who he is as our creator, and to do so before the days of trouble come. I think the real temptation, though, for people is this thought. I don't know if you've had this thought. I know I certainly have in my life, and maybe it's something you still think about. The temptation is for us to think, well, yeah, I'll think about God, but maybe just in a few years. I just want to kind of do the things that I want to do. Then maybe later, I'll just wait a bit longer, and then then I'll figure out who God is. There's many problems with this, isn't there? Many problems, but here's the biggest one. It could just simply be too late. When the time comes, it could be just too late. I, um, I know a guy, just before he turned 23, uh, healthy guy, lovely guy, hard worker, you know, fit, loves four-wheel driving. Um, he was just married just for a year, and he was over his dad's house for Father's Day, and then all of a sudden, passed out backward, had seizures, and his heart stopped. Absolutely out of nowhere. Like, who is to say that your life will go past 24 or 34 or 54? Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Remember him. At the uh, start, I mentioned uh, some examples of some people's lives, some young people, and I wonder, like, just thinking about these verses, how is it that you would answer them? Like, thinking about the Julies and the Jacks in this world, how would you counsel these young people from, from this passage from Ecclesiastes? Well, it is helpful, isn't it? It's helpful. Rejoice in life. It is good to be alive. And don't sit idly by as you live. Live it out. Live it out boldly. Live it out radically because life is short. And this perspective can really affect your life, can't it? It can transform you. So follow, you know, to follow your heart and to get on with it. But here's the real issue that we spoke about, isn't it? The, the fact that our hearts get it wrong. That's the problem. And we're going to be held personally accountable and responsible for the way we followed our hearts. 
hevel, hevel, absolutely futile. All right, so what are we to do, church? Well, here's what Ecclesiastes, if you do read through it, this is what it's going to be doing for you as you read through it. It's going to force you to see the reality of this world and that it's frustrating. But it's also going to force you to see the futility of trying to find meaning and purpose in it. But it's also going to, you're also going to see the, the foolish, foolishness and the futility of, of our own hearts and how it fails us, fails to provide us with meaning, fail to be satisfied. See, what Ecclesiastes is doing is it's forcing us, isn't it, to something else. It's forcing us to lift up our eyes. It's, it's, it's helping us to, to go to something more, something greater, or rather someone greater. See, we need, don't we? We need someone who is wiser than Ecclesiastes. We need someone who's greater than Solomon. Who do we need? Hoping someone would say it. We need Jesus, don't we? The world is full of frustration and emptiness. But Jesus came, what did he say? That you may have life and have life to the full. That's what he says in John 10. Jesus came to fill you up with the life and the love of God. And he's the only one actually who can show us what it is to truly live a life that is radical and right and done in great rejoicing. And so here's, here's my question for you today. See if you can think about this and maybe answer. What is the most radical thing, the most radical risk, the most daring and bold thing you can do with your life? What is it that will bring you the most joy and give you the courage to be daring? What is it? Well, it's this. It's to die. It's to lay down your life, your desires in wanting to rule your own way. It's to choose Jesus. There's nothing more radical than someone can do with their life than choose Jesus. And why would you do that? Why would you choose Jesus? Well, because the God of life laid down his life for you. It is through the Lord Jesus, actually, that you were created. It was for him that you were created. He loves you. He laid down his life to win you back from the grave and from death to be with him. And you know what? The promise is not only for that eternal life we are waiting, but that, that life can't but help trickle into the here and now. And God promises that. He's given us his spirit that is at work, changing us, making us new every day, causing us to rejoice in the life we have in Christ, empowering us to be bold, to live radically for Jesus, and to live rightly, to have the desire and freedom to live rightly for Jesus. Choosing to follow Jesus changes everything. It's the most radical thing you can do with your life. So what does it mean for anyone considering the future? Anyone that's confused about it? Anyone that's having to make tough decisions or feels trapped in life? Life is short. You only live once. Choose Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God, our creator, 
I just want to thank you for each person here today, um, for the life that you have given them. And we thank you and praise you that we have come to know life. Many of us have come to know the Lord Jesus, to know what it is to follow him. That simple but difficult call of putting to death our own self to live the life that he gives. And so, Lord, I just want to pray um, for those here today who maybe know about you, about your love, about your death on the cross, but who perhaps haven't chosen um, to follow you, perhaps haven't chosen to call you king. Those who don't know the life and the love that you give. So, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, um, you would indeed be just removing, removing those barriers, Lord, that we have of pride, of fear, of hurt. And so, Lord, all of us here today, we pray might be able to say with our mouths and confess with our hearts that we trust you as Lord of our life. That we have chosen Jesus, our King. And Father, we thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So Lord, may we as your people have just those hearts and minds that are ready to take risks in life, that are eager to live rightly for the Lord Jesus, so that we might indeed glorify him and honour him all the days of our life, however many they may be. Amen.